Welcome to podcast episode 8. This one's titled Break Shit and Rebuild Part 2. This is for after you've already read the materials from the postmodernism unit. And in this one, we're going to where I'm going to go through each of these things in a bit more detail. Um, I'm going to cover them hopefully just enough that you get an idea for how the concepts we covered in the first part of this lecture apply to these works, but not in so much detail that I end up with an hour-long episode. This one might be a little bit longer, but I'm not sure how long it'll be, so bear with me. Um, I think it should be pretty interesting. This is some of my favorite material here that we have in the entire course. So let's start with The Destructors by Graham Greene. This is an in- interesting story with a lot going on, um, and I'm going to try and use it to model how we can use deconstruction to break beyond the surface of a story and perhaps glean something or some meaning that goes beyond the simple narrative and plot, which is how deconstruction was kind of um, created and, and why it's used. I also want to make clear that, um, well not make clear, but just tell a little story. I actually came across this this story and this writer through the movie Donnie Darko. In the movie Donnie Darko, there's this miniature subplot uh, where one of the English teachers, I can't remember the actress's name right now off the top of my head, uh, Drew Barrymore, she's kind of being dragged across the coals by the school for including this, this story, The Destructors by Graham Greene, in her curriculum. And there's a, there's a kind of a hubbub from the parents about it because they think it's just wanton destruction and that it advocates for anarchy or whatever. Um, and so after, you know, I've seen that movie several times and one day I was like, I should look up this work. And I ended up reading a lot of Graham Greene's stuff and, and he's quite an interesting writer. Kind of toes the line between serious literary work and kind of more fun, almost like spy novels in a lot of ways or something. But then his uh, final novel, if I remember correctly, The Pride and Glory um, is fascinating, and I've been always been meaning to go back to it. Um, so let's get to deconstructing the story. The first way in which I think we can do this is by looking for some clues as to the historical context the story takes place in. We get some hints on this information several times. At one point, the narrator tells us that, quote, the gang met every morning in an impromptu car park, the site of the last bomb of the Blitz. End quote. On the surface, this is a statement of setting. The kids would meet in this open space where people would park, but the last portion of this quote tells us a bit more. The car park, or parking lot, was not created on purpose. Rather, it was created by the German bombing campaign in World War II. That's the, the Blitz. There are several ways we can deconstruct this simple statement to better texture the story and our understanding of it. What was once a residential area has been flattened. This represents major loss of property and life and is now being used as a place for people to store their cars as they go about their lives. This kind of speaks to the nature of the human experience. Even in the worst in times, we have to keep on living. There's a sense of inevitability here, a sense of helplessness that is continued on later in the story. What is more, this blown up um, space, a place that has seen tremendous violence, is now the place where these children meet every day to hang out. It's become a part of their lives. And there's something to be said here about the effects of growing up like this and how these types of traumas pass down through generations. We also get a hint at the deprivation under which these children are growing up in when Mr. Thomas offers them some chocolate, remarking that there is, quote, not enough to go around, there never is, end quote. And we get some more information about the group from the description of Trevor, who's referred to as T. Quote, there was every reason why T, as he was afterward referred to, 
should have been an object of mockery. There was his name, and they substituted the initial because otherwise they had no they had no excuse not to laugh at it. The fact that his father, a former architect and pl- uh, present clerk, had come down in the world, and that his mother considered herself better than the neighbors. What but an odd quality of danger, of the unpredictable, established in him in the gang without any ignoble ceremony of initiation? Notice the references to T's parents, who have apparently come down on hard times. Later, T mentions the name of the architect of the house they destroy. Together, these tell us that T is likely better educated and comes from a family that, until the war, was of higher economic class than the other boys. His entrance into the gang then takes the tenor of a flattening of socioeconomic levels and a permeation of the boundaries that separate those groups. In the gang, as in likely the world, this process comes with tension and leads to new group dynamics and some destructive outcomes. While this is fairly obvious in the deconstruction of the house, we are given a sense of the contradiction of these kinds of economic class politics later when Mr. Thomas returns early while the boys are inside tearing the house apart and is told someone is trapped in his outhouse. As he's being helped over his own fence, he first grumbles about, quote, boys coming over here, end quote, and then, and then quote, automatically, end quote, thanks the, boys for his, the boy for his help. This is a nation that has just been at war, in which the social classes that have been in tension with one another are suddenly asked to fight together for a common goal. The divides between these groups are not so easily broken down, and yet the dynamic of cooperation is far from clearly equal. It should be noticed that it is T's idea to destroy the house. He comes from a higher class and convinces these younger, less privileged boys to go along. There is most definitely something here about the organization of society and the exploitation of the lower classes by the higher classes. T's motivation is interesting as well. He claims to bear no ill will towards Mr. Thomas, saying, quote, of course I don't hate him, end quote. We also get the sense that this act of destruction um, is also, quote, a form of creation, end quote. For T, quote, all of this hate and love, end quote, is, quote, soft, it's Huey, there's only things, end quote. Notice the existentialist vein of thought that's implicit here. This nihilistic, anarchistic, and fundamentally rebellious um, attitude, and it should be noted that these young, these are young children destroying the house of an elderly man. This attitude is backed up by the several refrains that, quote, there is nothing personal, end quote, in what is happening. Finally, the entire incident is given a sense of the absurd when the story ends with the man um, who inadvertently brought the house down, the boys having tied the major support to his car, um, and he cannot help but laugh at what has befallen the old man, and he, he kind of ends the story just laughing. In this story, we have several clear deconstructions that take on a distinctly postmodernist vibe. Perhaps the most powerful is the complete lack of satisfactory reason given for what has happened. This is an act void of meaning, almost void of intent, void of anything but the deconstruction or the destruction itself which is a form of deconstruction. In a way, the entire story is an act of deconstruction. The barriers between classes, the foundations of meaning and purpose itself, um, even the physical and metaphorical acts of destruction are all broken down until there's nothing left to stand on, a feeling that it must have permeated the post-war era. And we should note here that his story was published in 1954. Finally, it should be mentioned that there's an inversion of destruction and creation here, where one becomes the other, and this closely mimics the postmodernist project, as it saw the creation of civilization in the creation of civilization, the destructive forces of, for example, racism and exploitation, and the destruction of the Western world after world wars was an opportunity to start anew. Now, the destructors comes on the scene a little early to be officially called postmodernism, 
though I think it's clear from the above that it leaned in that direction. But where Graham Greene nearly uh, merely leans, Ginsburg in his poem How dives headfirst into the deep end. What is probably immediately noticeable and most obvious is the chaotic structure to the poem. While there are some repeating elements and patterns on the whole, I'm sure this poem looks very different from what most of us think of as a poem. This was intentional, reflecting the postmodern desire to find newer, more effective ways to communicate the ideas and feelings of the world at the time. He begins with the line, quote, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, end quote. Here, Ginsburg immediately sets up the thin dichotomy between uh, genius and madness, which this is something that has become cliche since then. Um, this line is referenced in Fight Club in the movie and in the book. Um, but at this point, it wasn't quite so cliche. And it points to the fact that these are, by and large, social definitions. The genius is often madness accepted by society, dependent on the goals of that madness. And madness is often genius derided as counterproductive to society. And it's no accident that we, as people, uphold business leaders as the best of us, um, despite nearly constant evidence of harmful behavior. Ginsburg then goes through a series of lines that begin with the word who. Each of these marks an event in his life or in the lives of his peers. Some even reference cultural or social events at the time. I'd like to emphasize a section in the middle of part one. So, quote, Who bared their brains to heaven and under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated, who passed through universities with radiant cool eyes hallucinating Arkansas and Blake-like tragedy among the scholars of war, who were expelled from the academies for crazy and publishing obscene odes on the windows of the skull, who cowered in unshaven rooms and underwear, burning their money in wastebackets and listening to the terror through the wall. Here we have all the pillars of modern civilization mentioned. Religion, public institutions, economics. Each of these is at once blamed for the wasting of the, quote, greatest minds, end quote, and is being rejected outright in favor of, quote, dreams with drugs and waking nightmares, alcohol and cock and endless balls, end quote. It should be noticed that there's an element of the absurd here and that Ginsburg is going for shock value. Also, notice the existentialist vein of thought. The former quote, with its focus on concepts like religion and education and economics, is being traded for the realities of human life, dreams, nightmares, coping mechanisms, sex. This brings the conversation down to existence. This grounding of the conversation is backed up when, a little later, the narrator says, quote, <clears throat> To recreate the syntax and measure of poor human prose and stand before you speechless and intelligent and shaking with shame, rejected yet confessing out the soul to conform to the rhythm of thought in his naked and endless head, the madman bum and angel beaten time, unknown yet putting down here what might be left to say in time come after death. And rose reincarnate in the ghostly clothes of jazz and the gold horn shadow of the band and blew the suffering of America's naked mind for love into an Eli Eli Lama Lama Sabachitani saxophone cry that shivered the cities down to the last radio. With, absolute, with the absolute heart of the poem of life butchered out of their own bodies, good to eat a thousand years. End quote. So notice here the, the emphasis on physicality. Even when things like the soul or time or angels are mentioned, they are followed by physical descriptors like the word naked. The final line above as well falls to physical language as opposed to spiritual descriptors. Part 2 changes the tone quite a bit. Here we get this following quote, which I think is really interesting. Quote, Moloch, Moloch, robot apartments, invisible suburbs, skeleton treasuries, blind capitals, demonic industries, spectral nations, invisible madhouses, granite cocks, monstrous bombs. They broke their backs lifting Moloch to heaven. Pavements, trees, radios, tons, lifting the city to heaven which exists and is everywhere about us. So the exclamation Moloch is consistent and important. 
Moloch is a god mentioned in the Bible that is associated with child sacrifice. In this context, the references to various images reflecting modern life take on a sinister connotation, likening the capitalist economics of America and its related policies to religious dogma, for which uh, Ginsburg was not a... And for Ginsburg, this wasn't a compliment, hence the use of the word Moloch. And this kind of evil god, at least that's the way it's perceived in, in Judeo-Christian culture. Finally, part three begins with, uh, quote, Carl Solomon, end quote, and repeats the refrain, quote, I am with you in Rockland, end quote. Rockland represents a mental institution Ginsburg spent some time in and where he met Carl, Sol uh, uh, Carl Solomon. For Ginsburg, this man, who is, quote, madder than he is, end quote, represents the ways in which America has failed its people, as can be seen from the various references to the country in this section. In all, it's important to be reminded here of dialogism, the idea that, the idea mostly used for novels but relevant in this poem, I think, that any attempt at meaning has to take into account all the voices in a work. Ginsburg has taken up many voices here, mostly those of the forgotten and the ignored, the poet, the homosexual, the addict, the homeless, the mad, and he's juxtaposed them over the various ideological narratives we use to pave over these people and tell ourselves that everything is fine, just fine. In this, Ginsburg is engaging in kind of a na national dialogism, where for him, the success, air quotes, of his country is determined not just by the, quote, best of its people, but by all of them. Now, let's jump into the novel Crick Crack. So for the sake of brevity or what chance I have left of it, I'm going to focus basically just on the first short story of the collection. I think it does a really good job of both setting the stage for the rest of the book and representing some of the elements that separates post-colonial works from others. The first thing I want to point out is that there are two voices, uh, the two voices we have here in the story. As I mentioned in the previous lecture, decentralized narratives are essential to post-colonial writing. And this first story sets that up with the two characters writing letters to one another. Each of these narratives offer the reader, that's us, information the other could not. It is through the synthesis of these two that we come, the reader, come to a better understanding of the plot and themes of the story. This, in essence, is dialogism, um, kind of blatantly. Related to this is the implicit belief we get in the story about the power of language. Language and languages play an important role in post-colonialism, as it's always political and can be weaponized rather effectively by different groups in any political struggle. Uh, just think about how much we argue over the language of the Constitution here in the States and the downriver effects of those arguments. In the story, both characters are writing to one another, even though they know the other will never see their letters. And, and you have to ask, what's the point? As the story shows, language plays multiple roles, but one of the main things it does is it helps the characters frame and contextualize their own experiences. It's not just about communicating all the time. So next, I also want to call attention to the horrific violence, especially sexual violence in the story. Uh, the narrator spares no details. Quote, They have this thing now that they do. If they come into a house and there is a son and a mother there, they hold a gun to their heads. They make the son sleep with his mother. If it is a daughter and a father, they do the same thing. Some nights, Papa sleeps at his brother's, Uncle Pressure's house. Uncle Pressure sleeps in our house just in case they come. That way, Papa will never be forced to lie down in bed with me. Instead, Uncle Pressure would be forced to, but that would not be as bad. So this kind of violence has always been a part of the colonial project, and post-colonial writers are necessarily interested in the effects it has. We see this in the young girl who gives birth to a dead baby on the boat and who later throws herself into the ocean after she commits her, her child to the sea. This brings me to the next point. The specific kind of strife that happens in post-colonial states embeds itself 
in and disrupts all forms of social life from the state all the way down to the family unit. There is, for these people, no escape. The young girl writing in the story shows us this through her relationship with her father. She wishes, quote, those Makutes would kill him, end quote, and that he, quote, would catch a bullet, end quote. Sorry for my pronunciations. Later, she learns how much her father sacrificed for her safety, giving up everything he and his family before him had worked for. The ways in which politics trickles down to the family from generation to generation, usually through violence and especially through sexual violence, is an important element of this kind of literature. This disruption, in turn, leads to the sense of hopelessness the characters both express um, and that the stillborn child embodies. The suffering of these people is so great that they have no future, neither in their minds, their hopes, nor their lived lives. The boat, breaking apart slowly, as well as the second narrator's dream in which she is unable to speak, both represent this part of their existence. The girl sums this sentiment up, quote, I don't care anymore. I'm dead already. You have already done the worst to me that you can do. You have killed my soul, end quote. In many ways, this final and complete destruction of the individual is precisely what post-colonial writers are fighting against, trying to claw back their humanity after having, having it taken from them. This process, however, is perilous, and there's no guarantee of success. The plight of refugees in the boat, of the refugees in the boat, mimics this project. When the boy writes, quote, we might all have to strip down to the way we were born to keep ourselves from drowning, end quote, he could be describing what po the post-colonial writer is doing, trying to dig through the past to what came before colonization to better see a future worth hoping for. To be sure, there's a lot more here. There are the references to Africa and the slave trade. Um, those are especially powerful, interesting, but I would never be able to do them justice without really, really spending a lot of time on them and, and, and more time than I um, want to make you listen to me. It has to be noted, however, that the story ends in ambiguity. For the colonized, for whom the future is ever uncertain and unclear, for whom the self is the same, this ambiguity is a fact of life that must be lived with no matter how difficult. In turn, there is a moral and ethical grayness that pervades the experience of the colonized in these works, and as you have seen in the rest of the stories. While the abuses of the colonizers are clearly bad, which is an utterly inadequate word, the, it forces the colonized into po impossible positions where they must be, do terrible things to survive. Altogether, the entirety of the trauma lives on and follows people no matter where they go to escape. And that's another part of this collection of short stories, another part of post-colonialism, is the diaspora, the way that people you know, flee their country but also take their traumas with them to whatever host country they go to, where they often come across new traumas and new problems that they have to deal with. Um, and these are very interesting things that the book Crick Crack deals with. But I'm going to leave it there and let you uh, try to take some of that information and apply it to what you've read already in that story. So that ends this lecture. Um, I hope that you found that interesting and that enlightened some of this information a little bit. I think that Howl is, I mean, I think all these works are great and Howl is one of my favorite poems. Um, but I really do think that post-colonialism is incredibly interesting. And there is a really, really beautiful, tragic, wonderful, and enlightening library of work that falls under that vein. And if you find it interesting, if you enjoyed Crick Crack, um, the author has a, several other books, but there's also a lot of authors who work in this vein, from Salman Rushdie up to the disgraced Juno Diaz. And I think that they're worth checking out. And, and for me, this is some of my favorite things to read. And this is where literature comes home and literature hits the ground um, and kind of meets with the world that we live in today. And so if you're interested in these types of writing and you, and you want to explore it further, feel free to reach out and ask for recommendations. Um, there's a ton of them that are super, super interesting. I've got several of my own favorite authors 
um, especially some of the literature coming out of India or that has come out of India and South America is super interesting. Um, so just feel free to reach out. Anyways, I hope you have a great day and I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you very much. Thank you.